recently flew back home from Armenia, where he, with his team, captured the war that was going on in Artsakh. He will be walking us through what happened in the last two months. He's as unbiased, neutral, and as truthful as he possibly can. He's making a, a documentary, uh, which has a working title, 45 Days, if I've uh, got it correct. Uh, he's the man that is restoring our faith in journalistic integrity. Emil Giesen, welcome to the World Within podcast. Hello, thank you yeah. for having me. Yeah, I said it uh, right before we recorded. I said it actually already that since you came back from Armenia, you were doing interviews off and on. So uh, you already said in one of the interviews mm -hmm. that you wanted to do, uh, take it slow, deliberate down because, because it was Christmas. But uh, yeah, something. Yeah, thick and fast. So yeah, you're a purpose. Your purpose. Yeah, so now we've got a week. We got a week to Christmas now, haven't we? So it's really time now for everyone to start slowing down a bit. I think start getting yeah. into um, the spirit. Of course, there's people in Armenia that probably won't be getting into the spirit because they're still mourning um, what happened and everything, as well as many diaspora. But yeah, given you, your Christmas, Armenia's Christmas isn't until January, is it? Yeah, that's correct. That's so you've got more time than me. <laughs> I never looked at that that way, but as you said before, I don't think that the spirit will be up as in in the past yeah, years of course before. Not. And COVID as well, it's, it's had a massive impact. Yeah, yeah. I just uh, heard today the, the numbers that uh, of all the patients that were in, in Armenia. And you know, it, it's like one of those years again for Armenians. We are asking like, God, why did it happen again? So yeah, what can mm. we do? Uh, in advance of this podcast, I've uh, asked as many people as I possibly could to, to uh, get some more questions for you. And I've got a, quite a few, uh, a lot of people wanted to necessarily know if you were at certain regions because a uh, family of them were there, but I will go on. Uh, like the first question is from uh, Aaron and he asked, have you noticed any kind of betrayal or, or uh, something sketchy that was going on within the Armenian uh, soldiers? Um, I didn't see anything sketchy. What I will say is there's, is when it comes to warfare, there's a lot that goes on and at high, the normal average person isn't going to see or understand what's happened because there's been so there's so many different things going on not only that there's so many external pressures as well um, geopolitically pressures that have come in from countries such as Iran from NATO countries and from Russia and such so really when people there's a lot of conspiracy theories a lot of people it's very easy to come up with a rumor and Armenians love a rumor they love sharing a rumor that their cousins told them in the supermarket um and so yeah I wouldn't say there was anything sketchy amongst the soldiers what I would say is that a lot of the soldiers were quite disappointed that the war ended yeah. that they wanted to fight to the end and they were questioning what's happened um, where did where did it change? Because they believed they were winning the war. Um, but like I was saying, we don't know what pressures were put on to the government on both sides to stop the fighting. Yeah, like there were uh, as long as long as I can remember, in the first couple of weeks, there were there was someone who actually got caught, and it wasn't uh, it was an Armenian Azerbaijani person, or it was an Azerbaijani who could speak Armenian. So like that was one of those signals for Armenians to be uh, extremely alert and yeah, that kind of uh, treachery or 
Yeah, Armenia. Yeah, but you're gonna get that in every war. Every, yeah. every conflict, you're gonna get this. You're gonna have every country has spies operating in in the country. There, without a shadow of doubt, before the even first bomb dropped into um, Stepanakert, there would have been agents on the ground from Azerbaijan yeah. and been working there. In local Armenians that are actually working for the Azeris, calling in, reporting about it. That's just the nature of warfare. Um, mm. Every country does it. So, yeah, of course, there's going to be people that are turncoats, people that have been planted as seeds. And I, I wouldn't be very surprised. Well, it's a fact. There'll be people that have been working, embedded for years, waiting for this moment. Yeah, I think, yeah, since the, the war in July, uh, ever since actually even in may even before that there were a lot of signals that they were preparing for a war so as you just said they're really planting seeds already and mm. they they plan out the entire media campaign and the information war that was going on so it, as you might have said it doesn't surprise us right now um uh, a question from noel is what advice would you give arsach even having been there It's a very broad question. In Sorry, you broke up there. Say that one no, again. No problem. Now I'll ask what Sorry, you broke up there, mate. Sure. Uh, what advice would you give Artsakh after having been there? Oh, what do I give? Yeah. What advice would I give them? Yeah. That's, that's a tough question, that one. I, is they in the a day there's territories that have now lost that are now under Azerbaijan control. Um, thousands of people have left their homes um displaced the russians are there taking up watching the latching corridor and areas to the north and to the east is that does people need to just at the moment just take a step back and just see what's going on and see how it's going to play out because at the moment no one really knows exactly how it's going to play out in that area because they don't know how long the russian peacekeepers are physically going to be there they've committed to five years but really how long actually are going to be there we're seeing footage at the moment of the zeris pushing the line taking more prisoner soldiers um so we don't really know what's happening like fully at the moment it's really hard to tell especially as we're going into winter um it, it's a tough time so what i'd say to people there is just do you know I mean a lot of people have got to rebuild their lives because their lives are ruined they've been living in this territory for years and now they're having to give it up and leave and i think that especially at this time of year is terrible um so really i don't know what advice i'd give because it's not really my place as a brit to give people advice in their own country as such but what i would say is that i think diaspora needs to start playing a bigger part they, they helped massively during the war, but they need to help more now after the war because this is when the time the people actually need them. Yeah, it was all good and well sending money to help buy sleeping bags and equipment for soldiers. But now it's the people that are dealing with mental health issues, people that are lost family members and people that don't have their homes anymore. So really it's a big part for diaspora now to help people of us um, to rebuild their lives. Yeah, those are great points. Those are really great points. But the, the entire situation is very fresh, actually. It, like the, the 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 storm needs to settle down first before mm. before we actually can. But at the other hand, we also need to react quick. So it's it's a very vo volatile situation at every one of us actually. And so uh, as it come as it comes to the diaspora, of course we need to send money, but we also need to be internally be structured, government wise and financially wise. Yeah, definitely. And, so uh, I've actually asked, I did a podcast before with uh, someone who does charity stuff. 
who also is in Artsakh, and we asked him what is the one of the best what's the best thing that we actually can do in order to rejuvenate and revive the the place and he actually said you need to know people who are there because they know um what the weak points are and how we, we can strengthen actually so mm. for for us us being thousand miles away we're sending money that doesn't actually be means necessarily that's is going to help everything so luckily there are a lot of people already who are actually already moving there and they're sending out food and they're helping kids mm. with with their mental health so god bless them as uh, as i would say um Jana asked a personal question uh have you been to martuni yes yeah, so martuni i was in martuni at the end of the war um and if people have been following my instagram story they'll have seen the old man who was killed um yeah. who who we had lunch with and everything and he went over so i went on a little shopping trip with him i done a little story of quite a funny I've story with him. Yeah. yeah that that was in martuni area um so yeah I have been to Martuni. The Russians were there. There's a checkpoint of Russians there in that region. But Martuni is now split into two. You've got Martuni 1 and Martuni 2, where you've got Azeris and then you've got Armenians on one side. So yeah. it's a quite a split place. So it's like you're saying, it's quite turbulent in the sense that people are physically still there, Armenian side, and they're looking at the houses that were the houses and now the occupation by um, Azeris. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh... How did you actually come to meet uh, Ararat? Oh, dear connection, please. There he is. And I was like, yeah. Um, so we drove down there. We, he goes, I know this guy. He's one of, of our old volunteer fighter. And it, his men used his house during the war to go out and launch attacks against the Zeris. Um, so, yeah, we went around to his house for lunch and then he, where his house is, is at the base of the hill and you just go up the hill and that's the front, the new front line where there's the trench systems. They're in the trench that during the war, the Zeris and the Turks took it and the guys there, the local militia volunteers took it back again. There's a... Um, body parts of Azeri still up there. Mm. A couple of days before I got there, the Red Cross went down to pick up as many bodies as they could. But even in the trench system, there was still a body of an Azeri soldier still in there, which is now occupied by Armenian soldiers. And in the distance, you can see the other line is only like 400, 500 meters away. And you've got Azeris now in their trenches and they're both looking at one another across the line, across no man's land as such. Yeah, and you've mentioned yesterday in the, the interview that you did with Fred, with Fred the Goliath, um, uh, that the entire region of Artsakh is like 4.4 thousand uh, square kilometers, and they are with, how many mm. Russians are there? 2,000 Russians there are. Yeah, yeah. So there's only 2,000 troops, and if you think about it, that's like one soldier every two kilometers, really. Yeah. Um, something like that, but... Obviously, there's certain areas they're not going to be concentrating on, but the main emphasis for the Russians is the Latching Corridor, it's because that is the main route now through the southern route from Goris to Stepanica. So they need to keep that open because it goes through Latching, which is now controlled either side by the Zeris. So really, Stepanica is encaved but around territory of the enemy as such. So that's why the Russians are mainly focused in that area to secure yeah. civilians going back and forth, um, resupplies, logistics, and go along the Latching Corridor to Stepanica. The second that the Russians pull out of there, that area is going to collapse. Yeah. That fact is that Zeris will then take over that. They'll take over control of the border. 
control the roads. Uh, so it'd be a very dangerous place. So in, in essence, the Russians can't go anywhere. The Russians need to remain there. Because the second they pull their troops out, the whole of the Karabakh region will go to Azerbaijan and there'll be thousands of people will be trapped. Yeah. What are your estimations? Because you said before that the entire deal was like uh, for five years, but how realistic is it that the Russians are going to remain there? Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's a question. It's a tough one to know because yeah. no one knows what the future for Russia. No one knows the future of politics or Putin. No one knows what's going to come. If, for example, I don't think Putin's going anywhere. I think he's remaining in power until the day he dies, that one. But imagine there was a change of leadership and they changed the role. Or just imagine there's a deal between, just say there's an issue going on elsewhere in the world. And then Erdogan says to Putin, yeah, we're happy to help you. We'll do this for you. However, in terms of condition that you would pull your troops out after three years and allow us to take over. You don't know. Politics is a very dirty game. Yeah. Um, at the expense of human beings and their lives. So no one really knows. But I think... In the day, Russia is one of the big boys in the playground. You don't mess with the big boys in the playground, simple as. And at the moment, he's committed to five years. Why would you commit to five years and then pull out after five years when you can, you've got influence in the, in the region? You can now build new military bases. So it's, it's important to, for the Russia to keep troops there as long as they physically can. But then you don't know how that's going to play out with Armenia and Azerbaijan and Turkey in the long term. Yeah, things, things do change. God forbid. Yeah, because that's the entire, almost the entire reason why they attacked this particular year is because the entire world was busy with their own stuff, mm. and exactly this, the exact same thing a hundred years ago with the Armenian genocide. The entire world was in a war. So every time something happens globally, they seek their chance to to do whatever it is to what they like to Armenians. So what that. Yeah, what that means in the future, but... Erdogan's been very busy over the last few years. Since the, the military coup in... Uh, 2017? In 2016. 16. He's been... He's become more powerful. Was it, I thought it was 16, was it? Was I it think, 16, yeah. So I think we have to Google like that. that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So when, well, after the, the military coup there, he... He's become more powerful. He's got more control because he's shut down his opposition because after a military coup, people that are dangerous to you, you close them down. You, you get rid of all your, your enemies. It's a perfect excuse to have a cleanse of all those that can stand against you. And so since then, his foreign policy has got a lot more aggressive. He's become a lot more uh, expansive on the Ottomans, the new neo-Ottoman empire. For example, we've seen it in Syria. Even the, the irony of um, Operation Olive Branch in northern Syria to have that buffer zone where he pushed troops into northern Syria, Olive Branch being a symbol of peace, but he's going in militarily hard to fight the Kurds um, and try to cleanse that area of Kurds. And you, we saw it in, in areas like Afrin in northern Syria where he used... The, free Syri the Turkish Free Syrian Army, who are all jihadists, they're extremists, they're, they're enemies of Syria, enemies of any Western nation. And he was using them to, to go forward and fight against the Kurds. And so he's, he's definitely a sponsor of terrorism. There's no doubt yeah. about that. There's, 
when my time when I was filming out in Kurdistan, I was seeing lorries going from Mosul and from Raqqa into Turkey, um, oil trucks and everything else. They they weren't doing anything to directly stop Islamic State. They would turn a blind eye. They allowed them to cross the borders. All foreign fighters moved into Syria through and, Tur and through Iraq, through Turkey, that they are a state that just turns a blind eye and assists people in, to, to get whatever they want. He's now moved mercenaries and fighters into Libya, and then we've seen him do it into Azerbaijan now. There's, there's, I don't think there's anything that's stopping Erdogan at the moment, especially NATO in his expansion. Yeah, and just today uh, I saw an Instagram post of him trying to claim that he's going to take in Israel. Like, it just it boggles my yeah, mind. Seen, that's that, okay. I don't know how... Yeah, I know how, how credible mm. that post actually is, but to coming to know him for the past couple of years, it wouldn't surprise me. But that being said, don't you think, yeah. don't you think that uh, sooner or later, like um, the alpha male at the top of the hierarchy is going to be taken down by the two beneath them? Like there is so much internal um, discoherency, actually. That some There needs to be, there's going to happen something again like a coup my gut feeling is saying, but how, what is your opinion about it? Yeah, the, the thing is with, with, with Erdogan is even like you think about the French, when the French uh, president called him out and then he physically, verbally attacks him all over the news straight away. He's he's like this deranged old man and like a lot of people put a comparison on him to Hitler in the way he has his little rants um, and very much so. And I think it is that Turkish people are scared of him Journalists are scared because it's the second um, worst country for imprisonment of journalists after China. So the freedom of speech is suppressed there. So people don't want to speak out. So he's living in this little echo chamber where it yeah. seems that no one... He, he, Turkey is only influential because of where they are geographically on the globe. Is They've got the control to... You think about Crimea, for example, if the Russians getting into the Mediterranean, they're vital. They've got to go through Turkish waters. So he's can play the game with the Turk and um, with the Russians, and because he's the gateway between East and West. Also, he's a NATO member, so he plays NATO. So at the moment, you think what's happening in America and the sanctions they put on certain members of Erdogan's party because they've been buying weapons off the Russians. A NATO country buying weapons off Russia is a no-no. Is like, well, we're NATO. The biggest threat we have is Russia and China. Why are you buying weapons of the people who are our biggest threat? Because he was buying surface-to-air missiles. And that's the audacity of the guy is that I'm not saying sitting here as a, a filmmaker saying, oh, he should, should or shouldn't buy off countries. But really, if you look into the politics of it, he doesn't have any, like, responsibility. He doesn't hold himself accountable to anyone because he thinks Turkey is a law to itself. Uh, and that's dangerous in this world, yeah. especially when you've got think NATO's got to play very clever with Turkey and Erdogan because if he annoys them, he's going to move closer to Russia and China and Iran. Yeah. And at the same time, Russia, Iran, and China want to have influence over him because they don't want him to be getting more influence from NATO. So and knowing that they can discredit him against NATO and play the game. So he is really in a, a strong position, and that's why he's getting away with what he's doing. Yeah. But I've come to notice that America, for instance, are planning to in install an Arab force base in uh, in Greece, as, as something mm -hmm. like that. In that, as 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 far as I can see it, uh, they want to become less dependent of Turkey. Mm -hmm. that, this is, I, that's something that I would guess. Um, 
Uh, so let's see if I have another question. Uh, this more uh, remark than actually a question. Uh, Alan actually asked us, why did the British media stupidly portray themselves as they did? And this was a question that you actually already answered yesterday. So, uh... Mate, I could have hit you broke up there totally. Yeah, no problem. Uh, this is a more of a remark than of a question from Ellen. Uh, she asks, why did the British media stupidly portray themselves like they did? The British media? Yeah. Um, well, I can't speak on behalf of the British media, but <laughs> yeah. I think what it is, is they, that the BBC had access to Azerbaijan. So they, they used, so they were in so BBC reports, majority of them were from Azerbaijan. Um, what they should have done is had two full teams. Um, they had people that were in Armenia, of course it did, because it's BBC, they're everywhere. And, but they were mainly using their Moscow office, the BBC Moscow office to send reporters. But what they should have done is they should have had two teams, one in Azerbaijan, one in Armenia, and doing fair reporting daily on both sides of the conflict, rather than more, com more reporting on the Azerbaijan side, which they totally did, 100%. There's no question there that um, the Western media done that. Not only that is, I think... Armenia were very reluctant with journalists, especially people like myself who are independent. They didn't really understand the value that independents have. So they're a bit like wishy-washy, where I think even though um, Azerbaijan were very anti-journalists overall, they controlled them very much. So they, they took teams like the BBC or Russia Today or whoever it was, CNN, and they controlled the narrative they gave. They looked after them. They took them on press tours. So it was all very organised. So I think for the bigger companies, it was probably easier because they were just getting taken from A to B, turning up there and finding the story that they're being given. So it was an easier way. Therefore, from, like myself, it's following breadcrumbs and trying to go out and investigate the story of what's going on because the Armenians weren't really helping as such. Um, in Stepanek, they were doing like daily trips in, in a minibus to areas that had been bombed the previous day and it was just I went to one of them and I was just like this is boring this is this isn't real journalism this is just going to a village talking to a guy whose house was bombed yesterday yeah that's all good and well but it's not getting to the truth of the story so yeah I think a lot of media companies have let themselves down um but they don't really care they don't care they're just they're just profit organizations that want to sell adverts and that's nothing more nothing less yeah. obviously the bbc is very different because it's paid by the taxpayer but majority of news outlets are funded by shareholders they're funded by advertisements so it's yeah it's just one of the things it's, it's a sad world we live in but it's not yeah. just armenia wars all wars true story but the one of your main goals with your documentary actually is just to make it as human as possible and that was actually one of my my own questions. It's like, uh, how do you actually intend to make the documentary documentary in such a way that people who come to see it that they that it resonates with them? Yeah, and that's the hardest part now. Is is yeah. moving into post production now is trying to work out how best to tell that story because it's not it's not easy. It's not easy to think about. You think how complex the war was alone let alone the war to thinking about what comes after the war what came before the war and then trying to put that into a documentary of 80 to 90 minutes it's, it's very hard and that's the toughest part is trying to get that story arc so we've got so we can capture we all know we, we turn on to say hypothetically we, we go on netflix we put on something we don't know we see it we see a trailer 
we pull it on and go, that looks okay. We watch it. And in the first five minutes, we think this is rubbish and switch yeah. because that's the way our minds work. We were hungry for content. We've got so much content out there. So this story needs to grab people and people to go actually, not just Armen Armenians will watch it anyway, yeah. um, but <laughs> other people need to grab their attention and go, wow. Okay. Yeah. I want to watch this because I'm interested in this story. And I think if, if it's just about Armenia as such, and just telling like the history of Armenian people will be bored very quickly because that's the way our minds work. So I think it needs to be humanized so people can relate to it and go, actually, yeah, I recognize that person. That, that's, that's like my old uncle. That's my grandfather. I can see that. Well, that's, that could be my mother. Doesn't matter what nationality, what color of skin, what God they worship is humans are humans. And I think that's why it needs to be humanized so people can relate to it from wherever they are to then be interested in the actual story. So yeah, it's going to be very hard. It's not it's, mm. the post-production and editing is, is tricky, very hard work. Yeah. Good luck with that. Uh, wish, yeah, I wish the best of luck for your, for your, uh, <laughs> the entire process of it. I can imagine yeah, that's yeah. very difficult. You, you know, as far as it comes to Armenians and Armenian diaspora, as soon as it comes out, we'll go into almost like, yeah, yeah. uh, yeah. Yeah, put it in the faces of, of, of our friends, of our non-Armenian friends. That's what, yeah, actually, yeah. what we actually have done for the past couple of months. If they like it or not, I'm going to like inform them what's going to happen. And that's the least, one of the least things that we actually can do. And one of the things that you mentioned yesterday uh, is, is the diaspora's guilt. That we're just sitting here and watching things mm. happen. And uh, like, for instance, in my own family, four people have died. Like a father and a son and uh the nephew all of them by drones and that was mm. so disheartening to hear and yeah you also uh, said that this war was like the world was watching how the new type of warfare versus like the old school type of warfare is now playing out and uh, yeah definitely yeah and even even before this war even started um, in the british the british military was uh we're talking about how the future of warfare is even myself as a war marine commando is the war marines are now re-rolled re into the future commando force and they're focusing more heavily on um surveillance on using drones using drones for surveillance as well as attacking using more cyber stuff um the, the warfare is actually changing in britain we're, we're leading the way in that kind of modern warfare for, we have done for many years um but then seeing a real war played out through drone warfare is, to me, it was like, wow, this is exactly what everyone's been talking about. And here it is ready to go. And like I was saying before, is it's like a, it's like a computer game is yeah. you've got someone flying a drone hundreds, if not thousands of miles away, who's controlling it, sat in an office, drinking tea, um, eating his lunch at particular times and everything is so disconnected to the reality of what it is and what's going on is because someone could be launched that missile that that drone from anywhere the person who launched it isn't the person who's actually flying it or dropping on it um so it's very controlled and it's very when you've got someone who doesn't understand what's actually physically going on on the ground they're just being told these are the targets we want you to look for find these these um, targets and once you know them tell us and then we'll give you the green light or the red light to drop on it and it, in this war, when it's first started, it's like the key targets that the Azeris were going for was like rocket launchers, 
sort of grads, the smirches, that's what they wanted to take out because they've got the long distance. Then they're moving into the battle tanks, the main like T-72s, the T-80s, um, T-64s, to then get rid of the main battle tanks. They're moving into like the artillery. And then towards the end of the war, it was all played out on social media. They, we then saw them going for soldiers in trenches, soldiers that were living in the rear positions in their tents. They were even going for soldiers in, in the coaches and minibuses that were going to the front line. They were on the way from Yerevan, crossing over and getting attacked. So we saw the escalation on the, the targets changing all the way through the war because there's only Armenia only had a certain amount of equipment. The logistics resupply was poor. They're using old Soviet equipment. They weren't replenishing it. They weren't enough um, new tanks to get in. So all they were doing, the drones were just working down a list on priority targets. And that's why we saw so many videos of them attacking soldiers that stood around, soldiers in the woods, soldiers in cars. It was, it was, yeah, it was really surreal to see the way yeah. the drone warfare was played out through social media. Yeah, it was very disheartening to hear. Like I was in a, a WhatsApp group chat with a couple of people and one of them, uh, his family well, had inf inside information for what was going on in the war. And by the exact detail of what we heard, like uh, what happened when the drones attacked and where they came from, like mm. then actually it sinked in. Uh, yeah, the, the psychological part of, of this drone type of warfare. And yeah. one of the... One of the yeah, I hate to say it. Actually, this is my subjective personal opinion, but I do think that uh, as one of the leaders of Armenia needs to be someone who is really familiar with warfare. Mm. Like it is what it is. Like for the past 30 years, Armenia has peace. We had singers, we had actors, we had stuff like that, but um, we still need to have the backbone. And uh, the spirit of the Armenians was something that you praised yesterday, which is very glad to hear. Um, it's something different that it's your own home that you need to defend and your own people that you need to defend. And uh, you actually mm. also answered one of my other questions, like Diana asked for, asked for instance, uh, was there enough food and equipment for the soldiers? Like there was in the news that for a long time they were lacking essential stuff, but then uh, that wasn't the case. Have you come to notice anything about that? No, I'd, I'd say they were lacking a lot of stuff, really. They, it, as a soldier, you mean, you can work off the basics of like rations, food and stuff, but there was like a massive shortage of sleeping bags, warm mm -hmm. equipment, clothing. And the reason this is because the martial law was implemented. So thousands of men who weren't supposed to be in the army now all of a sudden become soldiers. They're sent to the front line that there isn't enough equipment for them all. So... That's when people were rallying together. This is where like the army surplus stores were then selling out of stuff. People from diaspora were sending money. People were going out and buying it and giving it direct to the soldiers. People were making stuff as quick as they can. Um, because yeah, yeah, thousands of men were mobilized to go to war. Food-wise, there was limited food because supplies um, weren't getting in to the Karabakh region because the roads were so dangerous because the drones and also the movement of troops as well. So there was definitely a lack of stuff and equipment, um, but more so there was a lack of actual expertise, actual professional soldiers. And I think that's the biggest issue they had is they didn't have, Armenia is a small country with small populations. So it's got a small army. Uh, they just weren't ready for it. Their equipment wasn't ready. And, and that's why I think it's a massive failure of the government is that they should have, for years, they should have been investing money into the military. Yeah. 
They should be investing into tactics, warfare, defence, um, because everyone must have known this was going to come someday. Everyone must have known that this was going to happen at some stage. Um, and then Turkey saw the opportunity, like you mentioned earlier, with COVID, with the US elections. They just saw an opportunity and gone, everyone's busy here. Let's, let's, let's start moving now. And knowing that Azerbaijan were having domestic issues, that there was a lot of protests in the country. People weren't happy with the government. So all they did was deflect the attention on the government by deflecting it onto Armenia. Yeah. The hatred, resentment. Let, well, don't, don't, don't throw stones at us. Let's throw stones at, every, at the other person over there that doesn't like all of us. And before you know it, is he's now become, a, the Azerbaijan president's now become a hero. He's won a war. His, his probably popularity is probably the, the highest it's ever been. And that's the way it works for countries is if politicians are failing and or leaders are failing, start a war. And if you win it, you're, you're the best thing ever because you once again, you brought some national pride to the country. So, yeah, it was, it was this this moment was planned for a very long time. And Armenia was caught off guard because they just weren't ready. They didn't have the equipment, didn't have the logistics and they just didn't have the international support. Yeah. That's, that's a very painful feedback point that you actually gave of the uh, military incompetency of, mm. of, the, uh, yeah, of the Armenian army in general. But do you have like, um, for instance, a country like Israel, for instance, they have, they have one of the most powerful armies that there actually are, as, as, mm. far, as, far as, my, as far as I know. So like, I, I am always pro-peace. I'm like, never strike unless you have been striking, but as a kind of landlocked country that we actually are, like, this is mm. our existence all the way through, as far as I know. And that's what a lot of people say. A lot of people say is Armenia should be the, the Christian Israel, in a sense that Israel is a small nation as well, but it's been mobilizing its military um, very aggressively over the years. It's spent massive amount of money in arms and in defense. It's building allies around the world. And I think Armenia needs to do that because when yeah. you're surrounded by people that want to fight you, you need to be ready for that. And if you're not investing and you're not preparing for it, it's going to happen. It's, it's like a, it's like having your house. And if you're not putting a gate, a fence around your house to protect it or putting an alarm on the house and everything, you someone's going to just walk straight in. You need to put some form of defense. And I don't think Armenia has done. And I think, is it because the government were more reliant on Russia that they thought, oh, it never happened because Russia is yeah. our friend? Or did they think, or they just felt we couldn't go to the West, we can't go towards Europe because Russia won't allow it? It's, 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 a, it's a hard one. Yeah, I, if, especially the elderly Armenians in, in my close circle, they said it in, uh, when they were in uh, the army, when they were younger, they said, well, no, the, the Russians got us. It's like, well, no mm. problem, the Russians got us. So right now, their opinion has changed completely. Like, we are the first Christian country and uh, Russia's behind us, but still this is happening. So like, the, um, it's sinking in uh, how much dependent we need to be of ourselves, which is somewhat not a bad thing to do, but I really am of the opinion that Armenia needs to become more like Israel as it comes to mm. the diaspora investing in Armenia. Yeah, yeah, definitely. hundred percent. And uh, yeah, totally. And knowing that is, I think the generational trauma between the Israelis and Armenians, there's a lot of similarities there because the Holocaust and the genocide. But then once again, it's quite strange that Israel doesn't recognize the genocide. And is it because they don't reckon the yeah. genocide because they don't overshadow their Holocaust? I, I think there's a difference between the government and the people of Israel themselves. Yeah, of course. So, yeah. 
So there, there's a lot of, uh, how would you say, um, conspiracy stuff in and of itself. But that, that's a podcast topic for, uh, for another time, I think. Mm. But yeah. Um, uh, Ani and Lucina, this is like an amalgam of three questions in one. Um, what were you not prepared for? What moment will never will forever be ingrained in your memory, and what had the most impact on you as a person? These are three questions, yeah. but they are similarly to yeah, each other. Yeah. And what I wasn't prepared prepared for, not much. I'm quite prepared when going into war zones. <laughs> I, I know yeah. what to expect. Um, what I would say is the most thing that's impacted me is just like I was saying in other interviews before is is just seeing family members who've lost family, um, like husbands and sons and everything, and just seeing that, and that will be ingrained on my mind forever. It's saying, even though I'm a former military man as well, and I'm, I've, I've been surrounded by a lot of death over the years, I'm very, I've been good at trying to shelter myself on the, the personal side of it. It's like, yeah, we've lost a good friend here. We've gone to the funeral, we've seen the family, but I withdraw back from it. Um, and I go back into my own little world. But for this time, I think it was exposed to me direct in my face that I was physically sitting there with these people that made it a lot harder that I was, it was like, I weren't forced to be there, but because I was mostly filming there, I had to see what was going on. And I think that's the hardest part. Um, seeing family members like sons, daughters, wives, mothers, fathers, who just lost their, their loved one in a, in a war that they now think, why do we bother fighting? We might as well just give the land and, to begin with and just kept all our sons at home. Mm. Um, and that's the sad part behind it, where people look, and people don't, people, some people get annoyed when I say this, but they turn around, people are asking the questions in Armenia, did our sons die in vain? Was it a waste of time? And yeah, we have it the same in the UK, where a lot of people I know go, did my son die in vain fighting Afghanistan and Iraq? Was it, what, what was it worth? Unless there's a victory at the end, it wasn't ever, it was never going to be worth anything. The losing side will always question, was it worth it? The Germans in, in 1918, after the war in 1945, probably asked, was it worth it? What was, what did we achieve? Nothing. We tried, but we failed. Um, but then you think about the Brits and Americans and the French, probably in the Second World War, go, of course our sons didn't die in vain because we stopped the aggressor. So I think it's very hard in Armenia now because there's a bitter pill to swallow that it was a defeat even though it's a peace agreement that was signed there's no you can sugarcoat it whatever way you want it was a defeat um so yeah just seeing the families who now their their, their loved ones are never coming home and it's just like yeah really emotional and that's etched in my mind um forever and then um, just just seeing the soldiers and just the, the disappointment of the soldiers who fought who many of them told me like their fathers fought and they won in the nineties, they fought in 2020 and lost. And it's like that guilt that they have to go home to their families and to say to them, well, we didn't do it. We didn't keep our land. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of emotional times, which we're going to, we're going to talk about in the, in the documentary and try like saying the human side of it, because there's so many moments out there that have changed the way I've seen this conflict. Which is a total different conflict to any other I've seen before. Mm. That, that says a lot coming from you. Like before mm. the question, uh, before you answer the question, you're saying, I've seen enough. But at the end of the question, you're saying that it's a whole other ball game. Yeah, definitely. It was yeah. uh, mainly because it was conventional. It was force on force, even though I saw that in Iraq um, when I was fighting in 2003. But it's still, the fact is, it's, it's like I keep using it, it's like the David and Goliath thing. It's this... Mm. 
this country that's got all this weaponry. It's got spent billions of dollars in weapons and um, in training. It's got the support of Turkey behind it. And then you've got Armenia, that young men are going to the front line who've never been picked up a gun before. And two days later, they're on the front line, probably holding the same rifle that their father used yeah. in the 90s. And that's and I think that's the, the story here. Um, great point. Another question. Uh, what can we do collectively to hold Azeris and Turks accountable for the war crimes that they committed? Yes, yeah, so a lot of people are asking about war crimes and you, people need to take a step back. The war ended less than a month ago. What day are you even know what day you're now? So it's it, just over a month ago, the war ended now, yeah? yeah? It takes time before anything can be done. I mean, it takes an investigation. People need to investigate. If, um, if me and you to go to carry out a crime tomorrow, it's gonna take time for a police investigation before we're convicted. And that's for just a little crime, let alone war crimes. It takes time, people need to be patient. And I think a lot of Armenians, especially diaspora, are pointing fingers and going, why is no one doing anything about this? And it's like, well, hold on. You don't know who's doing what about these kind of things. Yeah, these videos are circulating around the internet, but one, don't share them. If you if you if you're that bad, if you think they're ba that bad, and two is give it time. After the Second World War, Nazis weren't all rounded up the day after and then hung for their, their war crimes. It took time, but the, the issue you've got is the Zeris are the ones who won the war to a certain degree. I'm not saying they won the war as such, but they're like the they got more out of it than Armenia did. So holding them accountable is going to be a lot harder than holding the country who's carrying out war crimes and lost. It's, it's a different kind of way of dealing it. But yeah, there are organizations that are trying to put things together and um, to hold people accountable for what happened. But it's not easy and it's not quick and it takes time. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, but you actually have to, like all the stuff they put online, all the lies that they were, they were uh, portraying their own media, for instance, like it's just as clear as day. Like the BBC interviewed Alia, for instance, and they were asking him, mm. Uh, why did you bomb? Uh, you were there, for instance. You were, if I'm not mistaken, you were in Stepanakert, like in really like a civilian yeah, yeah. area. Yeah. So it's, it's, yeah. It's but he, so he, yeah, that interview with him, he, he just denied everything and just turned it around to be fake news. Everything's fake news and it didn't happen. And then I'd done a post on um, Instagram actually where I posted the video of him being interviewed by the BBC saying we didn't bomb civilian targets. And then there's, there's a picture I've taken of a house that's destroyed. Um, so yeah, there's a lot, I think what it comes down to, it's the same as what we saw with Trump is if you don't agree with the narrative or what people are saying, you just call it fake news. And that way you just discredit what they're saying because like you're telling lies, so I'm not gonna answer your question, which is a lie. Yeah, it's all ahead is fake news. Uh, the, first, the next one uh, is from Haripsime and uh, no questions. I just wanted to thank you for everything you do. Thank you very much. So that's not uh, another question. Um, let's see whatever we've got here. Uh, if you plan to do a barbecue in the future, are you going to use a hairdryer? Yeah, with that, clearly because I don't have any hair. So <laughs> people wouldn't imagine I own a hairdryer, but I do own a hairdryer actually because my dog, when I wash her, I need to hairdry her. So um, I, I would think about it, but I think the health and safety issue of a hairdryer and a barbecue is, <laughs> is like, it's a bit crazy. But yeah, but definitely, I, I see how it works. It's a good hack for a barbecue. Yeah. And as long as you've got a cable long enough, why not? 
I think, yeah. yeah, it's awesome. You've put on Instagram that a lot of Armenians send you the fact that the hairdryer was invented by an Armenian. And I've, I've come to notice, actually, was the intention of that invention for hairdryers or for the barbecue? That's <laughs> yeah. the kind of thing that I'm just like, yeah, it, it really made my day when uh, you posted that online. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, all the questions, all the major ones we actually answered. Um, what can I say? I wanted to thank you from my side as well. I wanted to wish you the best of luck with making the documentary. Uh, you already told that in January you wanted to at least have a trailer. And yeah. by, by April you wanted to officially re release it. Yeah. So the way, the, the way you're working at the moment is, is, is still a totally independent production at the moment. Um, so we're still collecting funds so people can go onto my Instagram, donate if they want to be part of it. Um, we're still taking donations because the main yeah. funding for documentaries isn't cheap. There's a lot of money that gets pumped into it. So really at the moment, it's still a fully independent. So the way there's two ways of doing it is either I go fully independent where I raise enough money um, to then produce the whole thing and then go, right, this is the documentary we've got, who's interested in potentially buying it or um, showing it. Or at the stage where I got to January, February, do I go to commissioners? Do I go to companies and go, right, this is what I've got. This is the footage. It's still on hard drives. This is a story arc I want. Do you want to help put it to then get out? And they will pick up the fund for that. But the only, the only problem with that is then you lose control of the narrative. Because then you've got an organisation that's coming on board to go, yeah, we want to, we want to, we want that, but we think we can only get sell this product if we told a story this way. So then I'll lose a bit of the the artistic um, control of it, which I don't particularly want. So really, the best case scenario is we get enough funding so we can just produce the documentary the way we want to tell it, and then we've got the finished package. Go, this is what we've got. Here's the story. Who's interested in showing it? And um, really, but that all comes down to funding. Yeah, where can people find a link for the funding? So it's in my Instagram, Emil Geeson. If you go to my Instagram, you can click yeah. in the bio. Um, it's the link there and just whatever you've got. I mean, if it's $5, $10, whatever it is, or euros um, or pounds. So yeah, it's just everything goes towards the production. And because like I was saying, the costs of things is really expensive, especially now we're moving into the phase where I might have to take another trip back to Armenia to do more footage. Um, we need people to edit, start assisting the edit, the online edit, um, the color grade, the sound check, and then we've got the marketing of it, and then potential more flights. And even even like, during we we we've raised a lot of money so far, but even even on the last trip we've done, our baggage, like extra baggage in and out of country, was like five or seven percent of the actual overall budget just for bags. It's it's like ridiculous, and that's that's just baggage, let alone flights. So really, there's. The money, yeah, people see there's a, a bit of money in the account and it looks massive, but a lot of that money is gone because it's been spent on things and there's a lot behind the scenes work that goes into making documentaries. Um, so yeah, definitely we need support. So if anyone yeah. is interested, um, touch base with me, let me know. I'll include it. Uh, there's uh, a lot of content from you online, so I might ask a question which I self could find the answer to. Have you made a different type of documentaries? Like uh, how how experienced are you with making documentaries like this yeah so i've got I've, I've done two featured documentaries that um you can watch either on amazon depends on where you are or you can watch it on um, youtube so i've made 
a feature documentary on volunteer fighters that fought against Islamic State. So I spent two and a half yeah. years back and forth yeah. in Iraq and Syria um, called Robin Hood Complex, the fight against the Islamic State. And it's focused on this. That was a totally independent documentary, again, fully funded by myself um, on men that are fighting against Islamic State and what motivated them. Um, it's a brilliant documentary and well worth watching. Yeah. And then the second feature film I've made is volunteer fighters that were fighting in Ukraine in the trenches against the Russian separatists, which is also called Robin Hood Complex, but is um, Europe's forgotten war, Ukraine. And both of them are brilliant documentaries, um, both feature documentaries. Some people go, yeah, documentary, and they think about a 20, 30 minute, 40 minute documentary. I, I specialize in features, long, long documentaries that tell the story from a grassroots raw level. And I think that's an important story. It's not, it's not like a vice quick 20 minutes on, this is what it is, blah, 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 blah. 20 minutes later, you're like, okay, yeah, I watched something. It was interesting for 20 minutes. This gets into the to the roots of things. It gets in there and tells people a true story and reflection on what's going on. So, yeah, my previous work, probably best for depends on where your listeners are, but YouTube, Robin Hood Complex. There's yeah. two of them on there. I've seen some footage. If, if, like the first time I've heard of you, I was like, all right, who's this guy? And mm. uh, I went to YouTube and saw some footage, obviously. Uh, I've also heard from you that a lot of Armenians wanted to involve themselves into the documentary, but mm. the, the bad part would be uh, that their names would be in the documentary that would result into the fact it doesn't seem independent, which is a great thing yeah. from you to make it as unbiased as possible. Yeah, definitely. And it, it, of course, there's going to be names in the credits that are Armenians because Armenians have worked on it because it's a documentary in Armenia. If, if a documentary was made in Somalia, there'd be Somali names in there because it's just the nature of the business. Um, but yeah, but overall, I'm trying to resist. And that's why we need the funding. So if we have the funding. We don't have to go to people that can assist with funding, which are, could potentially be Armenians. And then people go, oh, well, so it's an Armenian funded documentary rather than an independent funded documentary. Even though Armenians can donate, then they haven't got, they're not giving money and saying, okay, we want a bit of control over it. So I think just to really is to keep it totally independent, to stop people trying to discredit, well, people discredit anyway, people discredit me for my previous work before. Do you mean, I've done loads of stories other than just this, and some stories have gone wrong and people try to discredit for it and try to bring it back years later and go, oh, well, you've done this story. And, do you, and it's just like, get over yourself. Do you mean, you um, people will try to discredit you in any way possible. So, but really to keep it totally independent, that's where our ideal world, we've got the full funding, which we don't even know what the full funding is because we've now lifted it to 70,000 pounds. But even that, I don't think will be enough to get it bang on the way it needs to be told. But even so, it's, it's a benchmark and it'll get us there somewhere, um, is try to keep it totally independent, really, rather than actually having to beg, borrow and steal to get people involved. But yeah, there's so many Armenians that want to be involved from the diaspora. And it's just trying to keep people at bay to go, yeah. okay, if you want to come involved, but do you mean,